back. It's behind the lens. That means it must be Monday. As a matter of fact, it's the last Monday in March. Can you believe it? The first quarter of the year is almost gone. And like 2020, with 2021, we can't wait to get through it as fast as possible. Um, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, writers, directors, actors, costumers, production designers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, um, you name it. And we talk to them. Um, I'm very, very excited about today's show. You know, I've been teasing you about Concrete Cowboy for the past couple weeks. I can finally talk about it in full today. And uh, very shortly, you're going to hear my exclusive interview with the uh, co-writer, director, Ricky Staub. Um, I love this film so much. And not just because I'm from Philadelphia and because I know uh, the history of the urban cowboys in Philly, but it is a damn good film. Uh, we also have joining us at the midpoint of the show, if the if the phone gods are with us, we're going to have writer-director Aoife Crehan calling us live from the UK or Ireland. I'm not sure if she's at home in Ireland or if she's in the UK, um, but she's calling from across the pond. So to talk about her film, it's her first feature, uh, just like Concrete Cowboy is Ricky's first feature. Uh, Aoife's film is called The Last Right, and it is a real charmer. Uh, and I can't wait to talk to her about it. It was shot um, in Ireland, and needless to say, it's very green and it's very pretty. And yeah, there's a lot of rain and sea as well. Um, but I'm very excited to be speaking with Aoife about her film. Um, but uh, before we jump into film, I must give the biggest shout out in the world. You all, you all know, my regular listeners, my regular readers, you know how important uh, literacy and books are to me. Uh, I spent many years working in the, in the school libraries all the way through elementary school and junior high school uh, before moving into the TV studios. But my pal, my longtime 30-plus year pal, Lisa Scottolini, um, best-selling New York Times author, has a new book. It just came out on Tuesday called if you're looking at our at our adrenalineradio.com facebook feed you'll see the ta my lovely tablescape and prominently displayed is lisa's new book it's called eternal uh she's known for her legal thrillers and then uh, domestic dramas but now she's ventured into historical fiction uh historical fiction set at the time of world war ii in italy her research, and being an attorney, her research is always impeccable. Um, it, it is flawless. This book is, I can't wait for somebody to buy the rights to this and turn it into a film. It is engrossing. It is fascinating. She transports us uh, through history, back in time, with this incredible story and takes us into neighborhoods and parts of the culture that most of us have never heard of or learned about. So it's just fascinating. And uh, 
I know Lisa has been very skeptical and petrified about how everybody would receive this book, how it would turn out, being her first uh, foray into historical fiction. It is incredible. Uh, and as she knows, I've already bought multiple copies of the book. One I read, one she signs and I save forever, and the other one in case somebody needs it and hasn't seen it and I give it to them. Uh, but I can't recommend it highly enough. It is fabulous. Uh, the book is eternal. It's put out by Putnam and uh, for my for my pal and fellow Philadelphian and Legal Eagle, Lisa Scottolini. Congrats, Lisa. You did an amazing, amazing job. And I hope everybody uh, gets the book and reads it. Uh, they will not be disappointed. And all you film companies out there, I'm serious. You should jump on this. Get some options on this to make it into a film. Because it would, would make an incredible period piece. All right. So enough of my gushing for my pal uh, and her new book. So we're going to move on and we're going to talk film now. And we're going to talk about Concrete Cowboy. Now, a lot of people in Philadelphia, older people, the ARP generation uh, and beyond, know about the urban cowboys in Philadelphia. And more particularly in the 21st century, the Fletcher Street uh, cowboys. Uh, Fletcher Street is a neighborhood in North Philly. At one point in Philadelphia, there were uh, horses all over the city. You know, back in the in the early 1900s, before cars and even after cars, but people didn't have them. Everything was done. Ice was delivered. Milk was done. Everything was uh, by horse. You know, horse-drawn wagons. Uh, so it was a big part of the culture in the early 1900s. And even when my dad was growing up, and you'll hear Ricky and I talk about this, my dad grew up in the Alney section of Philadelphia. Uh, and I grew up hearing stories about when he was a young boy in the 30s and into the, and into the early and into the 40s in Alney. And I heard about from my grandparents as well. And I, I actually have pictures of my dad sitting on ponies and big horses that were taken in his neighborhood on the street in front of his house and it always fascinated me what there were horses on the sidewalk you know what you know what's going on and I would hear the stories about the cowboys throughout Philadelphia and there were conclaves all over the city uh Valley Green, Wissahickon, Cobbs Creek um many 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 um clusters of urban cowboys and uh, one of the last remaining are the folks at Fletcher Street. And yes, because of the cost of stabling, yes, you try and have stables as uh, Fletcher Street has. But a lot of people over the years, horses were in their houses. It's no joke. Horses were in their houses. Uh, and you're going to see some of this portrayed in 21st Century North Philadelphia and Concrete Cowboy when you see the film this week. film opens on April 2nd. Uh, but I grew up hearing these stories about these horses. And I heard it from my grandparents. I heard it from my dad. I heard it from my great aunts. And I always thought it was just the most fun thing in the world. And then I would, as I got older, my dad would take me to some of these 
areas, even as gentrification was setting in and the areas were changing and the horse communities were being encroached upon. But you could still find them. And luckily, because he was in the media, you know, he knew where a lot of them were in addition to growing up in the city and knowing it like the back of his hand. Uh, But that always fascinated me. So when Greg Neary wrote his book a few years ago, Ghetto Cowboy, it's a fictional, but it's based on these cowboys. And the book fell into the hands of Ricky Staub and his producing and writing partner, Dan Wazer, and they decided to make this into a film. Their office for their film company, uh, Neighborhood Film Co., is in North Philadelphia, just a couple blocks away from Fletcher Street. So Ricky wanted to be very authentic, insisted. Tucker Tooley, I, uh, Tucker, I give you so many props. You are always so thoughtful and thorough in films that you come in on uh, with production and financing and you do the same thing here. Authenticity, authenticity, authenticity. This entire film is shot in North Philadelphia. Uh, it is shot on Fletcher Street. It is shot in the neighborhoods. Um, and it is wonderful to see. But let me give you a caveat here, because as you watch the film when it opens on Friday, um, while the film was shot, in the open pastures at Fletcher Street where the horses run, where kids learn how to ride. That whole pasture area is now gone. It has been taken over through eminent domain um, by the city for the Susquehanna Housing Project. And it is now it has now been chained off and the horses are not there. The stables are still adjacent. People still have horses in their house. They're still in the stables. But they are desperately looking for new areas for the horses. There are various, you can go, you can Google Fletcher Street. You can uh, uh, Google Ricky's Company, Neighborhood Film Co. You can go to Concrete Cowboy. And you can find various organizations where they're trying to raise funds to help the feeding and care and if need be, transport of these majestic, these wonderful animals and this piece of culture that nobody wants to see die. Um, it's sad to watch the film. On the one hand, you see the joy uh, of, the, of the, the locals because so many of the people in this film, it's not just Idris Elba. A lot of the riders, a lot of the extras, they're all locals who live in that area, in that North Philadelphia area. In fact, as you'll hear Ricky and I talk, there are several members of the cast who are actual Fletcher Street originals. Uh, One standout who plays a character of Isha uh, is Ivana Mercedes. I thought she was a professional actress. No. She is a local Philly resident, um, and she rides. She has a horse. She lives in North Philly. She's a member of Fletcher Street Originals uh, Cowboy Club. Uh, Seeing her, you've got Jamil Pratis. And trust me, when you see him on screen, you're going to think you're looking at Lakeith Stanfield. You are not. Uh, (laughs) Jamil Pratis is also a member of Fletcher Street, and he really dedicates his life 
to the care and the feeding of horses and this culture. But so much of this, you can't fake this. You have to embrace it. That This is a way of life and a culture. And Ricky has captured this beautifully. It is one of my must-see picks, film picks of the year already. Um, for the history, for the culture. Uh, and because it's a damn fine film. Uh, you've got Idris Elba. You've got Kayla McLaughlin. Uh, you've got Jarrell Jerome. Method Man himself, who plays a cop of all things. And a truly, an ethereal performance from Lorraine Toussaint. Um, it opens Friday. See it, see it, see it. It's Netflix. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough. But without any further ado, let's take a listen to my exclusive with Ricky Staub talking about Concrete Cowboy. Hi, Ricky. Hey, how's it going? Well, it is going, and I am so excited to talk to you about this film. Awesome. I'm excited to talk to you, too. I grew up knowing about, because I grew up in Philly. So nice. I grew up. We're going to really get into the good stuff. Yes, because I knew from the, I was born in the 50s, so it was part of my background to hear about and know about the horses in North Philly because my dad grew up in the Olney section of Philly oh, in the 30s. That's amazing. You know, I have pictures of him because what a lot of the horsemen did back in the, thir the 30s and 40s to help make ends meet when everything was going to cars and buses and trolleys, yeah. they would actually take the horses through neighborhoods and, and parents would have their kids get on yeah. on the horses and get walked. Like pony, pony rides. Yeah, but they would do it on yeah. full full size horses as well. So yeah. to see the they still do that. They do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There, there's so many times when I would uh, like Mill, who plays Paris in the film. I call him. I'd be like, "Where are you at?" And he's like, "I'm out. Uh, we just needed to make a few bucks, so I'm out giving rides at the park." Yeah. <laughs> oh. Able to take the horses out there. You know, and it's, it's so sad for me because knowing how prevalent the horse culture was in the area, um, from the Green Valley area, Cobbs Creek, Wissahickon, um, you know, beyond going beyond North Philly, uh, and to see how, how gentrification and redevelopment has just encroached further and further. It's very sad because it's such a necessary part of culture and an important part of Philly's history. Yeah, you know, it's, um, I should remember the term um, because we're actually, we had started a nonprofit four years ago to help um, establish a permanent residence and stables for the Black Cowboys in Philly. Um, it's called the Philadelphia Urban Riding Academy. But they were talking about how there's like this unquantifiable heritage that happens you know it's not like a landmark that you can see it's just like a heritage like a, a vibe in a neighborhood that gentrification is unaware of you have developers coming in from out of the city that are legitimately unaware of what they're erasing uh, which is the unfortunate reality of the 
Yeah, the Susquehanna housing development, yeah. But this, they used to actually teach this in elementary school as part, like, second or third grade. You would learn about the, the horse history in Philly, and they don't, I know they don't do that anymore. No, I mean, there's a lot of people in Philadelphia that had no clue about the Cowboys when we first started. So, well, the fact, the fact they got to see Idris riding on a horse, I think, opened up the eyes of some people. Yeah. But Everyone knows about Everybody knows. Yeah, as as, uh, the Cowboys down at Fletcher Street said, Philly is on fire. Yeah. (laughs) Once the trailer trailer drops, they're very excited. Well, and as they should be. It's actually a very, in very uh, many respects, it's a very proud part of the city's history, and especially that area, especially North Philadelphia in in this day and age. And... That's what really excited me about this film. And I got to tell you, Ricky, watching this film, there are moments I'm in tears watching it because at the heart, yes, it's it's about this history, this richness. But at its heart, it's about a father and a son. And you then extend beyond that. And you then the horses, as we all know, Horses are very therapeutic. They're used in therapies for so many different things. And, you know, to have the horse culture and have these horses be the catalyst that helps this father and son find each other and, and learn to love each other is priceless and so eloquently told. Thank you so much. I mean, it means obviously so much. Uh, to hear, especially from someone from Philly, but I'm glad that resonated because it's definitely the tenor of much of my conversations with the men and women that call Fletcher Street home, that the way horses, A, just changed their life, the horses themselves, but, you know, regrafted relationships between, you know, siblings and parents um, because of their mutual love of these animals is, uh, was a really uh, beautiful to learn about. Yeah, it's and to see you bring that to life is so important, and it's something that's resonant all over the globe. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, obviously since I started working on the film, I've been made aware of many other communities around the country, and even internationally, of these urban cowboys that are doing much of the same type of work that's happening at Fletcher Street. You know, using these horses to help young kids. You know, I know this was a, a long journey to get this film made, Ricky, but I'm curious, this is your first feature film. You know, where do you, as a filmmaker, even start? Because you have such a rich uh, topic. You've got a great book to start from as your jumping off point. But then you also make this film so cinematic. I was just gasping gasping with some of the Brett Minka's breathtaking cinematography with some of those sunsets and the sunrises and the use of sun flares and you really the film is so cinematic this belies you this belies you being a first time director uh, of a feature so I'm really I'm really curious where your jumping off point was. How did you ap- 
approach this to tell this story? You know, well, a lot of it, um, thank you, by the way, for all the kind words. I'll make sure to pass on to Minka, who I think is one of the greatest cinematographers um, of the day. Like, I fully anticipate that his career is going to be um, unprecedented. I feel grateful to have met him so early on in the journey. But um, I think, you know, to answer your point, like a jumping off place, is, I think one, there's just visually, the cowboys aren't arresting visual in an urban setting like North Philly. You know, my uh, I have a production company in our office in Philadelphia is less than a mile from Fletcher Street. Um, but my production company that I started in 2011, I launched it with a mission to hire adults returning home from incarceration to work full time in my company. Mm-hmm. So I speak every year in court. And the first cowboy I met was a gentleman, Eric Miller, who had been a week out of prison um, standing before a judge and had already purchased the horse, which I found very fascinating. It's not, you don't hear that every day when you're in court. And so we actually uh, struck up a friendship and a relationship. He had seen this short film that I had made with all real people in the community. And so our original vision for the film was actually to make a movie with all the real Fletcher Street cowboys. Um, you know, we would joke that Eric would play hard, but <laughs> to me it wasn't a joke because someone had to play him. Um, but certainly when uh, once Idris Elba showed interest, we uh, were all very, we're happy to pivot to include him in the film. But, um, you know, we maintained that original core DNA to the storytelling where, you know, 10 of the leads in the film are real community members, like actual speaking roles. Mm-hmm are real people from the community, you know, 11 of the 14 stunt doubles were all actual cowboys from the community. Much of our crew were real people from the community. So in a lot of ways, uh, we were able to still make the film that we had originally set out to make. We just had the privilege of having world-class actors be in it as well. Well, I have to tell you, absolutely stand out. Beyond Jamil Paredes, you've got Yvonne Mercedes, as Isha, she just leaps off the screen, leaps off the screen. She is amazing. And what's so beautiful about watching her, watching Jamil, and some of the other actual Fletcher Street uh, riders is you feel their heart. There, it, You really capture that and bring that out on screen. Oh, thank you, yeah. I'm glad that resonated with you because it's definitely... Uh a major conversation point, but, you know, I'm very grateful to my producers, you know, Lee and Tucker, Jeff and Jen, all believe in my craziness to cast uh, real cowboys in the film, but, you know, uh, Mercedes particularly, you know, to be opposite Caleb was no small task. Um, And as you can imagine, I saw auditions from all kinds of, young cowgirls, but also just really wonderful actresses um, in New York and L.A. And there were some fantastic auditions, but Mercedes genuinely from, I still remember I was like days away from starting principal photography and I hadn't found the actress and uh, Erin Brown, she's the executive director of uh, the Philadelphia Urban Writing Academy, the nonprofit uh, we launched with the Cowboys. She sent me a, a text video of Mercedes 
reading the scene opposite someone and she was like in a closet wow. and I just remember having this weird feeling like I was literally ready to make a decision on another actress and I watched and I was like huh like there's just something about her and so I had her come in and read and I'm big about um, going off script so I had her just read and I said just interpret the scene however I just you know I don't want you to be nervous and she was great but then you know, all our producers are like, well, when it comes to game day, you know, she's going to have to be able to read the actual lines and deliver. So um, I was like, I was trying to press, like, no, 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 I'll get her there. It'll be fine. But um, for to their credit, like, she did have to prove that she could do it. So I had her come in again and audition, and I told her beforehand, I was like, you got to know every word in that script, and you got to deliver it and win the job. And she came in and was even better. Um, memorized and it was really a no-brainer I remember sending the video to Lee and you know he was really my strongest advocate for casting real people in Philly and he was like man you got you have a winner on your hands she's brilliant well I just think she's so dynamic and beautiful and like such a unique specific way I mean she grew up riding at Fletcher Street so to me it was like there's no better fit Oh, absolutely. And it's her smile just lights oh, up yeah. the screen. But she is, whenever she, especially when she first is appears on screen, she is a breath of fresh air. She is like just wafting through a spring air, coming through the neighborhood oh, yeah. and onto the screen. It's really beautiful. But where you really start is you know the opening when we get to Philly when Cole gets to Philly in that nighttime scene and you get Lorraine Toussaint there and her calm wisdom that she brings as Nessie right there you tell us so much in that one scene and it's kudos to Timothy Stevens your production designer and then your costumers because here she is on a porch like most people are on a hot summer night in Philly. Yeah. And yeah. there's a little horse statue sitting in her window. And then you look yeah. at what she's wearing and her jeans. Teresa did a great job with the costume design because as she pulls her leg up and puts it on the railing, you see the Southwest design trim going down the, the side seam of the blue jeans. You see the silver and turquoise necklace around her neck and throughout the film she wears a wide turquoise sleeping beauty turquoise and silver bracelet so yeah, you you have the the western theme running through and then you also you're scoring it almost opens with the like a western note of the whistling wind yeah exactly how he described it. <laughs> and okay, we're going to interrupt our exclusive with Ricky Staub talking Concrete Cowboy uh, because Aoife Crehan has is already on the line. And since she is calling live from the UK, I don't want to make her hold. So we're going to come back to the last 10 minutes or so of uh, my interview with Ricky Staub talking Concrete Cowboy and, of course, closing the show out 
open it, start and start opening it with Philly, ending it with Philly makes perfect sense to me. But right now, without any further ado, I want to welcome Aoife Crean to Behind the Lens. Aoife, hello. Hi, hi, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. Thank you uh, so much for having me. Oh, um, my- I, I love the podcast. I'm now a, subscri- a subscriber. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for calling in. Now, are you in Ireland right now, or where are you? Um, I'm in the UK. I'm in. I'm in Brighton. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, by by the sea, which is nice. Uh huh. I've heard lovely things about Brighton by the Sea, and every film I see it in, it <laughs> looks lovely. Um, one day I'll get there, but I am so yeah, you should. <laughs> when we can all travel again, uh, my bucket list has been increasing. Uh, <laughs> of all the places, I, I hope it's got Ireland on it. Oh, without a doubt, it has Ireland on it. Uh, I know I've got on my mother's side of the family. Um, I have relative, they, they came from Ireland. So some of them, oh, came. Wonderful. so I definitely have to want to go. I want to do, do Ireland and then jump over to Germany where all of my dad's family comes from generations upon oh, generations. Wow. So just, you know, take time off and, and just travel before we have another pandemic and can't travel again. So, yeah, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing I am so happy about is that pandemic and all, the last right is still finding its way out there. And it's everybody is now going to be able to see it. Um, this has been a, lo- yeah. a long journey for you. Yeah, I'm re- re- it's been so thrilled that um that you guys will be will be able to see it. I'm mean, re- really just about that. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, because it comes out digitally and theatrically on the ninth. So not this yeah. not this Friday, but next Friday. Um, everybody yeah, will be yeah. able to see the last right. And if I have to tell you, it is so charming. You've got wow. it's light. You've got comedy. You have some drama. You address, um, you have a, a main character uh, who's on the auti- autism spectrum. You handle that with such grace and sensitivity. Um, you de- We're dealing with death in this film. And you touch on the respect for tradition and for elders. And so much of this is family. It's all about family. This film has so much heart in it. And it looks gorgeous. So, uh, <laughs> what more could we want? Oh well, I'm so glad you you liked it. Thank you. <laughs> Where did you get the idea? Because you wrote and directed this. This is your first feature. You've got a couple shorts under your belt, but anybody making the leap into a feature—that's a whole different ball game. Especially when you're starting <laughs> with the story, and you're not just writing ten pages. You got to write ninety to a hundred pages. Um, you know where? Where did this story arise? What was the impetus for this one? And um, well, the impetus story-wise was I heard about a man in Amsterdam who buried people that had nobody else to bury them, like with no next of kin. 
And I, I was really moved by it. Um, and then at the same time, I heard about my friend's dad, who um, he's I, Irish, and I, this is a school friend of mine, and her dad had fallen out with his brother 30 years before his brother had moved to America. And he tried to get in touch with him, and he couldn't find them. And he hired a private detective and was really heartbroken to discover that he was buried in an unmarked grave on Hart Island. And then he... And was so kind of heartbroken basically that he 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 moved he got his his he exhumed his brother and brought him home to be buried in Kerry and um, in the family um graveyard or, but with the rest of the family and I just thought that was so moving that the need to be reconciled with your brother and the regret of having fallen out um and and the the idea that you could you could be reconciled in death even if you weren't in in life and I think as um yeah I, I grew grew up in having grown up in Ireland with um with, you know the Northern Ireland conflict I, I, I just you know the I, I think anything that causes division within families or or hate or anything like that I think um it's such a waste and so tragic so I I, I wanted to make a story that was you know about love <laughs> and and um you know, love above all else, and, and, you know, kind of family love. Well, you definitely do that, and you do it. it, There is so much heart in this film um, and within each of your characters because this is basically, you've got your three main characters. You have Daniel, who lives in New York. His mom has died. He has to go back to Ireland uh, and played by the brilliant Michael Hausman. Um that, oh, he's wonderful. Oh my God, he is just a charmer, and he's on yeah. he's on the flight to Ireland, and an old man next to him who also happens to have the last name of Murphy, um, and he had to write who would be his next of kin. Who do you notify in the event something happens? And for whatever reason, he wrote Daniel's name down, just because who he had just met. And, you know, there must have been something, something that he saw in him. And, of course, you know, it's, it's, it's not a spoiler to say that the elder, Padraig Murphy, dies <laughs> mid-flight. <laughs> we get to Ireland, and there's a dead guy in the seat. So what do you do? You've got Daniel saying, I'm not related. I don't know why he put me down. No, you have to take the body. He says you're related. No, we're not related. Um, and then he's already heard the story how Pedrick's brother had just died, and he was going to Ireland to bury him. And in the, so we've got Daniel and his mother has passed. He's got that funeral. He also has to deal with his brother, who uh, his brother Lewis, who is autistic, and then a neighbor, uh, Mary, she comes into the mix, and we end up with a road trip with them taking a body to Northern Ireland and the cops chasing them, led by the incomparable Columini uh, as, <laughs> as the lead detective Garda. And we have Brian Cox. You have, you have the most amazing cast here. Brian Cox as the priest who is going to do the burial of the Murphy brothers. If, if we can ever get Patrick Murphy's casket there for the funeral. And 
it is just watching this road trip because you turn this into a road trip and and complete with everything that can go wrong will go wrong and it's how do you even approach telling this story that's an an amazing um synopsis that you gave there thank you (laughs) um and and yeah, it's um we were so chuffed to have Brian um Brian Cox and I'm a huge Succession fan so I, I kind of couldn't believe you know that we had Logan Roy on set <laughs> I was a bit terrified um and and we were just lucky all over with with the cast um, and Carl Meany and um and McKeel and and Neve Algar who's a wonderful Mary and and Samuel Bottomley and um, who plays Dewey so we just we had a kind of a really great cast um who were kind of up for it because it was, it was a kind of a crazy schedule um, and a, a sort of fly-by-the-seat-of-our-pants type you know, thing. I- <laughs> um, so it, and, and we traveled. We actually, it was really important to me because um, I, I know uh, Tana Kilty and Cork and Rathen Island and I, I, I wanted, it was really important for me that we shoot them for real that we didn't, like, um, everybody was trying to persuade us to get a stand-in, like, you know, shoot in the middle of Ireland in a, in a, a county that, you know, we would kind of pretend was West Cork. Or, um, and nobody thought that we would actually, would be crazy enough to actually go to the island of Rathlin Island, which is quite, like, it's right at the top of Ireland. It's like the ferries were cancelled because of storms the, a few <laughs> days before we were supposed to shoot there. It was, it's kind of wild. Um, and so, but but I, I knew that you just couldn't cheat. Like there's a kind of there's a a, a, a definitely a kind of a beauty um, in and a poignancy, or there, there's something there's something in the Irish landscape and, and the lights. I think mm-hmm. that um, and the it, it, the wildness of the kind of the Atlantic, basically. <laughs> that I, I thought you can't nothing can replace that. So we we have to shoot there, um, and obviously then sacrifices have to be made in order to to achieve that. Well, but, um, but we definitely, we made the road journey ourselves. Well, <laughs> it was, trust me, it was well worth it. And then to really embrace that landscape, you get Shane Kelly as your cinematographer. I am such a huge admirer of Shane's work over the years. Um, He's wonderful, yeah. Most people may know his work for Richard Linklater's Boyhood. I personally love his work with Last Flag Flying. Um, Oh, yeah, that's gorgeous, yeah. That is, it's so rich and textured. Uh, Or A Scanner Darkly. He has such, uh, and what he does with light. Um, and And this is something that a lot of people don't realize. And I know cinematographers, I love talking to them about light and directors who understand it because the the moisture in the air, the dryness in the air, all of this affects your sun diffusion or cloud diffusion. And that can change the entire palette and visual tone yeah. uh, of your film. And you really need cinematographers who understand how light works. And when you get to different meridians, when you get to longitude and latitude and you start looking at different spots on the globe, it changes exponentially. Um, so you need a guy like Shane Kelly. And, oh, my God, he does, yeah, he well, does not mean, disappoint. 
Yeah, that was one of the our kind of the biggest coups was was kind of getting Shane. I was like still pinching myself because he was um, one exactly as you say. It's like what he does with light and natural light is um, it's he just he he can because of what we what I really wanted was like to shoot Ireland as Ireland, like a kind of the natural Ireland rather than the kind of um, romanticized glossy version of Ireland that can sometimes get. Um, but I, um, so, um, and Shane, what Shane is wonderful with as well is, um, he, he, he works really fluidly. So, um, because our schedule was so crazy and he's, he's quite performance led. So it meant that, um, me and the actors, what we'd kind of, we'd get together and kind of discuss the scene and rehearse and, and like, it meant that the actors could kind of, their, their first instinct could come out first. And then Shane and I would kind of get together and discuss cameras. So it kind of, and, and in some of the, that worked to kind of think especially well in some kind of really um, performance key scenes, like when um, Louis has a kind of um, an upsetting moment in the cottage when they get to Rattan Island and, and Shane was basically just following um, following the actors around with the camera on his shoulder. So it was it was just letting the actors dictate um and i think and then as well as other moments the calls for kind of actually just let's let's step back and appreciate the landscape mm-hmm. so he's kind of he's a really intuitive um the cinematographer so i was yeah i mean it, it's it's thanks to to shane that we got the film it made <laughs> in, in terms of shots you know <laughs> you know and that that's one of the the wonderful things is i'm watching this and i can tell when he shifts to handheld or a shoulder for the interiors and then you've got you know you're traveling or you've got drones or you're on sticks outside and this contrast between the wide open vistas and then the intimacy of the lower ceilings in the homes a lot in the car and we're going to talk about the car shooting in a car in a minute um but um never Something that I found very interesting is when you start getting into shooting within cars and in rooms that have a lower ceiling and are smaller than what most people are used to. And cottages do have lower ceilings. Um, Yeah, and tiny spaces. Tiny spaces. But we never feel claustrophobic. We never feel claustrophobia. You look at Lewis in his room with an eave ceiling as as it comes down on one side. And number one, you've got white on the wall. So that brightens it up and lightens it up. There's a well-placed window. But it's still, it's small, but it never feels cramped. It it feels homey. It feels intimate. You are in the kitchen uh, in the little cottage out on the island. And while everything is on top of everything, and Michael's character of Daniel can barely get through the door without hitting his head on the top of the frame, mm-hmm. you never feel claustrophobic. You feel warm and intimate, very familial. And even in the car, and shooting in cars is the death of so many directors and cinematographers. <laughs> um, yeah. We, and you, didn't ha- you were using a compact car. You weren't using a big, you know, 1960s or 70s Lincoln Continental sedan. Uh, you know, how, how was this for you logistically navigating this um, shooting within the car? 
Yeah, it, it was definitely the, the hardest um, and the, the most literally backbreaking thing. Um, but it, like, I, I wanted as much as possible. Like, I guess sacrifices and compromises have to be made because, you know, I I think we only had three three and a half days in in the car to shoot, so it was it was kind of insane. Um, and 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 what I wanted the most was the three of them in shot as, as much as possible. Um, to kind of build the, the idea of the, the three of them as a unit. Um, so what we, we were on a low loader, um, and Shane was kind of, the camera was like basically stuck onto the the windscreen. Um, and then we were kind of doing this circuit round. We were sh- shooting that that portion of the shoot. We were um, just out in kind of the sub, outside Dublin and the edge of County Kildare, which is, we were basically just going around in a motorway. Um, doing a, a circuit, but that, and we were just shooting. We were, we, we just kept rolling, basically. Um, so it was, it, it wow. was definitely the most challenging, I would say, and it was the, the <laughs> toughest on the actors. Um, they definitely, they were, you know, troopers throughout it. Um, but it was, and I was in the boot. When I say it was literally backbreaking, I, I literally did my back in <laughs> because I was in the boot of the car. Oh no! Um, because of the way we were filming in order to give notes to the actors without stopping. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't have anywhere to stop on the side of the road. It would have, we would have lost so much time. So um, I was like crouched down trying to stay out of shots. Um, so, oh so it my. was definitely, definitely challenging. Well, now, did it improve when you moved from the car into the van? Um, marginally. <laughs> well, it did actually, yeah, because we had the back of the van. So, um, so I was I was in the back of the van, and there, there was more space. Um, and but I, I, we had the same kind of challenge in terms of we were doing the same circuit, um, so we were just kind of oh my gosh, you know, um, trying trying we were basically just trying to cover the scenes. I think in in a way of um, like I in a I'm sure like it, yeah, it's one thing I definitely I know every filmmaker probably wishes they had more time. And more time, but God, I would have loved more time in, in the in the car in the van. <laughs> now, did the because I, I noticed there's a lot of rain happening uh, in this yeah. film. It's 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 very wet. We've got the spray from the ocean, of course, um, but then you've got slick roadways. You've got and it looks beautiful when the roadways are wet. It they always roadways always look better when they when they're wet because you get that nice sheen uh, and light bounce off of them. Uh, and then the rain also makes all the the trees, all the foliage look that much greener and even more beautiful and rich and textured. But did the weather impact your shooting schedule at all, or did you just keep plowing on? Um, well, it's funny. We definitely had to. I was really adamant that um, we needed to shoot in in the right season because obviously, you know, it's actors becoming available and there, there were there were times when it looked like maybe we would have to shoot in you know spring or summer and then try and cheat it but but i i just knew that you if you if we did that because the story is that like basically it, it needed it needed the rain and it needed the winter i thought for the for the story that if it was like it wouldn't have felt the same if it was shot in like not that ireland ever has totally blue skies <laughs> but if it was shot with an abundance of greenery and an abundance of kind of sun no. I think it would have. Um, it, that wasn't what I was going for. So I said. So we shot in November and December, um, and we kind of made that a priority that we need. This was when we had to shoot, 
Um, and then we when we, were, we had to we went back to get some pickup landscape shots, um, and we were fighting to get to get those shots in before spring exploded. Um, and I think we just kind of made it at the last um, the last week before all of the buds kind of came out mm-hmm. from the trees. Um, so it definitely felt important to the story, um, and it was something that was. Uh, it, it made a challenge. Like, and when I, I think I said earlier that we almost that we were the week we were supposed to shoot in Rathlin Island, the ferries were all cancelled, and we never would have made it. And um, so it, that was a kind of a, a luck and schedule that we we were we were a week later anyway. But it was very touched and go, and we were very afraid that um, the producers definitely were having you know heart attacks that we were all going to get trapped on the islands and and not make it back to shoot the rest of the movie. Oh, no. Um, and we were on top of the cliff um, getting, like, drenched and freezing. And the poor actors, like Neve and Nikhil and Samuel, they were in the boat. Like, they were getting drenched with, like, ice cold water from the sea. Um, they were nearly catatonic. Like, it was, a, it was, oh, it was definitely a challenge. Oh, uh. Well, you know, something that I really love is that for American audiences, we're, we're getting to see some actors here we don't normally get to see. Um, Neem Algar as Mary is a new face. Eleanor O'Brien as the brand, the brand new Garda, Sheila, who has her little notepad and writes everything on her little notepad, um, is just naivete, innocent, wide-eyed naivete and innocence. She is magical, but you get... Oh, she's gorgeous. Oh, my God. I was totally unfamiliar with her. She is enchanting. Um, This is her first movie as well. You'd never never know it because she is so Mm. nuanced, and I love the way her eyes get really big when somebody's, especially when she's, you know, with intimidated by Colm's character. Of the detect is yeah. lead detective, and we all we've all seen him enough. We know how he can get, how overbearing in certain roles he can be. And watching her re- reactions are incredible. It is yeah, she's a, she's a gorgeous actress, and she had us um, in stitches in her her audition tape. It was like that naivety and kind of. Um, she, she just she has a lovely quality like as an actor and as a person and um she's yeah and, and she, she's also she's an amazing singer as well actually um which is nothing to do with the film but just uh, like <laughs> I, I saw something <laughs> that I was like wow and and um, so I think yeah she, she's special and of course Samuel Bottomley as Lewis wow wow yeah he is incredible uh, yeah, he's a really, really special actor, Samuel. Um, he's so, so instinctive. And he was he was seventeen when we shot, um, and he just he has such a natural talent. Like it's um, like and Shane and I were always kind of saying that you could you can basically just stick a camera on Sam, and like you wouldn't nothing has to be nothing else has to be said or done, and just just him on camera is mesmerizing because he is so completely 
in in the role from the from the moment the ca- the cameras roll. It's, mm-hmm. it's like uh, he's one of the most amazing actors I think I've ever um, come across. Watching him, um, so I, I think he's going to be huge. <laughs> he reminded me watching him. He not uh, not that this comparison, not not that this other actor is by any stretch of the imagination old, but Sam really reminds me of a much younger George McKay. Oh wow! Okay, cool. He really reminds me of George, um, but just watching, watching him, watching him in the car, watching his focus, um, truly outstanding. And of course, yeah, and the, he, he, as well as um, the, 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 him having to portray autism, which he did so um, sensitively and. With such nuance, I think he he also he was um he has a he's from Leeds in the United Kingdom, so he his accent is completely different to to what you see what's on screen, and um, so he and he and the Irish accent can be quite hard to pull off. I think it's like a lot of people can go too strong on it. So again, it's kind of what what he does with it is so just so he's he his like his instinct is to kind of to be nuanced, and and we saw a lot of really interesting actors audition for Louis and it was really interesting that a lot of them were kind of I think automatically going to um a, a sort of a stereotyped image mm. that they may, may have had about um kind of what they thought autism was maybe but what Samuel did from his kind of first um audition tape it was just he had such kind of he had he completely internalized it um the the, the character and, and the role and he just He's so empathetic, and um, and again, as I said, we, we it was seven. He was seventeen when we shot, which is kind of the, the amount of wisdom and compassion um, that he has, just as a kind of you know a, a young man, is, is kind of incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm curious uh, because there is so much discussion, any you know, in the zeitgeist anymore about hiring disabled, hiring people on the spectrum, hiring uh, you know the diversity issue. Was there any thought yeah. about hiring uh, a young man on the autism spectrum? And hand in hand with that, what kind of research did you do to so accurately portray the character of Lewis here? Well, it's funny because we definitely did um, gra- kind of grapple with, with it a little bit. And, and since then, I've been kind of thinking of it as well. Well, I, I think um, one thing that I think needs to be really taught seriously by and respected is for 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 the you know the actors um sake if they if we were to have hired um someone on the autistic spectrum is a film set is a really crazy place um Mm -hmm. it's like there's just so much chaos yeah and we had um we had a really really like a really crazy schedule and it nearly broke me as a kind of supposedly neurotypical thing, you know, or kind of like, I, I think, and so if we were to have gone that route and if, and if we were in, in order for us to have gone that route, basically, I think what I'm saying is we would have had to entirely, um, we would have had to, I think we probably needed more money. I suppose but maybe what it comes down to is that, um, to have a schedule that fully, um, allows allows mm-hmm. the space for um for for someone who who kind of needs a bit more space maybe that um mm-hmm. I, I just I think it it's it, I think it's a really important um 
conversation and I think it, it should go hand in hand with okay if if we in order for that to happen then what what does this actor need for right. it to happen because definitely the set that we had it would have been um I think traumatic because it was you know almost traumatic for every bed yeah. for a kind of a normal person yeah you have to look at the safety and well-being uh of your yeah actor. it's, it's the, the emotional well-being and the kind of meant men, the and um, the mental um, health, I think, because, you know, they're they're kind of it's it's a full on place, basically. Um, but 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 that said, I think the other, um, you know, say, for example, one of the I mean, Sam is just such a, a, a phenomenal talent as, as an actor. And one of yeah. the things I know that draws actors to the craft is being able to empathize and imagine um, yourself in other people's shoes, so it's kind of it, it's a, it's um like it's a I think to we actors should we I, I I'm not sure if if you know that like a- empathy and imagination is such a huge part of you know filmmaking um that we should people you know people I, I guess you kind of you can't I we don't I, should we be taking that away entirely from actors. But I think it's more just giving, making sure that there's a full-on choice mm-hmm. um, and that, that it is an environment where people, both options are available and, and you kind of, you're looking at it realistically um, for, for the sake of everyone involved. I suppose. Mm-hmm. So now at the end of the day, as the American audiences are finally going to get to see The Last Rite, and which, by the way, I, I love the double entendre of, of the title itself. Um, it could be the last right R-I-G-H-T, or some people, when they hear, okay, we've got people being buried, they could think it's R-I-T-E. Um, yeah. So I really love that, that little bit of a play on word with the title. Uh, but now that the film is it's about to be unleashed uh, on the American audience, you know, what did you learn about yourself? In the process of making this film, what did you learn about yourself as a writer and a director? Because I know in the past you have said you consider yourself a writer first and director second. Um, I think you're a perfect meld of both. But I'm, I'm curious what you've learned about yourself as that filmmaker that you can now take forward into your future projects. Will your directing this feature now impact how you write a script? Um, you know, I'm I'm really curious about that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I I think it was I I feel like the lessons I learned on this film were like almost you know three films worth of lessons. Um, there were a lot of challenges, and and I think interestingly, um, I think the world has actually changed a huge amount since we even shot and edited this film. Mm-hmm. Um, like and I mean in terms of I think as a as a a female filmmaker I think you do um certainly when I was making it there's um you need to you know you need to be prepared to stand your ground um and to kind of there is a tendency and um for people to talk over you <laughs> it's, it's like um that that happens and it's a kind of an extraordinarily high amount um so I think um, you just have to. I think what I learned was to kind of uh, be be strong um, and to um, 
to, to trust myself, I suppose, but trust my my instincts. And also that um, at the end of the day, I, I learned a huge amount about what collaboration, you know, what what kind of, what, what makes, you know, because film and TV, I think the magic of them is that it's all about collaboration and, you know, you, you cannot do it alone if you want to work alone, go and write a novel. <laughs> but, um, and I think I learned what, what true good collaboration is and and I and I I appreciate that with a kind of a depth of appreciation now um that um that I will forever take forward. Oh, well Eva, I can't thank you enough for calling in uh to the show oh. today. This has been a real joy getting to talk to you about the last right. Um it is it is charming. Uh, I can't wait to see what you do what? next. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for, for having having me on. <laughs> oh, my God. I hope you'll come back on the show again. Yes, I hope so. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a TV show, so hopefully that will be, be on. <laughs> Ooh. Well, I can't, whatever it is, I can't wait to see it. Oh, Aoife, thank you <laughs> so, so much. Oh, thanks, Debbie. And take care. You too. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Aoife Crean talking about The Last Rite, which opens theatrical and digital VOD next Friday, April the 9th. So see it, see it, see it. And now when Pam stops doing whatever Pam is doing, what is Pam doing? Uh, oh, okay. A different phone rang. All right. We got phones. We got things happening all over the all over Adrenaline Radio today. Well, we're going to get back to my exclusive with Ricky Staub when we broke uh, to let Aoife come on live. When you call me from the UK, you do not have to wait. When uh, when you call me from Moscow, as Timur Bekmambetov has done, you do not wait. We bring you live right away. Um, but to get back to Concrete Cowboy. I had just finished at mentioning, talking to Ricky about the production design, the costuming, the attention to detail in the costuming, and the jewelry that uh, Lorraine Toussaint's character uh, of Nessie wears. And I have to tell you, Lorraine Toussaint in this film, as Nessie, she really is so wise. She has a quiet wisdom that she brings to this story. Uh, and it is just a joy watching her in this character. But as I mentioned to Ricky, you know, we've got costuming carries through with a Southwest trim on her jeans. She's got the sterling and turquoise jewelry. She always wears a very large sterling and turquoise. It looks like Sleeping Beauty turquoise um, bracelet uh, throughout the film. And at times she's got a necklace and then production design took the care and detail of a wood carving of a horse in her window in the window of her house all these little details uh that come courtesy of production designer timothy stevens is is incredible his work is incredible especially as he does the decor and accommodates houses uh horses in living rooms uh, with particularly with Idris Elba's character of Harp, the horses in the living room, as is a corner for hay and roping off the area and other accoutrements, uh, just 
all these little bits, the minutiae. The devil is in the details in film. And one of the other details that helped make this film is the score from Kevin Matley. And as you'll hear, uh, Ricky and I jump in here. Um, the film opens, the tone is set with the score, and you hear almost a whistling wind that reminds you of Old Cowboys, the days of John Ford. Um, so take a listen to the rest of my exclusive interview with writer-director Ricky Staub talking Concrete Cowboy. Composer Kevin Matley, I feel like, threaded that line uh, really beautifully to put those notes in there. And you pick it up later on with your sound design, you know, at the hour 22 mark with the whole brouhaha with animal control and the horses are being taken and Cole is devastated. And we can hear the wind. And it's like a cold wind that has just come in. Your metaphor here is yeah. so delicately done as well. Thank you so much. It's so uh, exciting and encouraging to, to hear how much you picked up. It's, uh, it's awesome. <laughs> you know, you have every, every possible upbeat here. And you've put everything together. I'm curious, how did you and your and your department heads go about designing this visual tonal bandwidth to have this cohesiveness going through for Timothy to go beyond Nessie's porch and her, the front window of her house, but into Harp's house and everything that's in that's in there. And yeah, people are going to laugh, but yeah, people actually do have horses in their house. They do. I did not make that up. <laughs> That's true. I know. <laughs> yeah. They or you know, I, uh, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to the community that supported uh, us making this film uh, because we were gifted a lot of their time and a lot of their heart and a lot of their references. You know, Nessie in particular. Um, there's a real woman named Tweety, which sometimes I laugh. I'm like, I should have named the character Tweety because it's also a great name. <laughs> um, but her entire wardrobe and style is um, based off of Tweety style, which is Southwestern. And she actually Tweety lives in Arizona now. Um, we flew her out for the filming so she could be there. Um, but she was incredibly influential on in that. I think there's actually a picture of her on the IMDb. I saw that today, um, which is funny. Um, and you'll see it's like a nasty knockoff. Um, you know, so I was very insistent that all department heads, you know, given they didn't have as much time as I had there uh, with the community, you know, spanning years, to, to lean on their expertise. So this is their world and this is their life. So don't assume you know anything. Like, you know, uh, inundate them with questions and their availability to give answers was incredible. You know, even down to, you know, I really do applaud Tim and the art team did such an amazing job with Hart's house. I mean, that was an empty, abandoned house. Like, there was nothing in there. And they populated that entire space. Um, all the references we had found of literally, like, all references were old photographs. Like, this stuff wasn't digital online. It was I had photo albums of like printed old school photographs that community members had given me that I would scan and fill basically like a Dropbox and a book. I printed a lot of them so that people had, you know, we wanted to fill 
even with like the type of glass we chose to film on, Minka was intentionally old, um, you know, not even as sharp as most modern lenses because I wanted it to feel like the photographs, like warm and worn out. Um, but you know, it would have never, I would have never been able to pull that off without access to the community and their commitment to helping us paint this portrait. What lenses did you and Minka shoot with? Uh, you know what? You can ask me a different one because I don't know the aggregate the answer. I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> you want to ask a different one? I can I can like shoot you note later. I forget it. They're okay. really old. They're from like the seventies. I remember that. Okay. Well, since you can't really answer that question, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna just ask you one more. Then, Ricky, you know what did you? learn about yourself as a filmmaker, as a director, in making a film of this scope, of this cinematic nature? You know, I think I learned, um, I mean, there's an obvious answer, which is I learned a lot about a community and a people group that's vastly different from me. And I hope it's something that other filmmakers can one day experience, you know, that the level of empathy that went into telling the story, um, the amount of care, like it was, it's, it's carried over since the completion of the film. And I know will outlast this moment in time when it'll come out that, uh, how important the process of the filmmaking was not even just the end product. I'm really proud of the end product and obviously really happy how it, the film turned out. Um, but I learned a lot about, you know, just the length at which it, you have to go as a leader, um, telling someone else's story. And um, there's the obvious, like, cultural differences, um, the race discussion around me and telling a story. But, you know, my life has forever changed. Like, I was invited into a community so different from my own, and I have brothers and sisters um, who I otherwise would never have in my life, um, that I get to call friends for the rest of my life. And so I, didn't, I don't think in the beginning, as a filmmaker, I recognized that that was like this beautiful gift that would be given to me as a storyteller. Um, and I think it will change for sure the types of stories I want to tell in the future because it's one of the greatest gifts about this film is it's not mine. It truly is everyone's film. Like, um, it's almost feels disingenuous to say that it's like all the attention should be given to me because I, anyone who's probably made a film could echo this, but I know for sure that without all the department heads you mentioned and all the cowboys that stood beside me and were there on set every day to make sure that it was their story being told, like I, the film would never, would never exist as it is today. And so um, it's, it definitely taught, I didn't recognize that, that I would learn that or be gifted with that. Um, and it's a joy to be able to have that um, as part of my process and future moving forward as a person, um, you know, because it's really hard to make a movie and I can't imagine doing it by myself. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm just glad that I, uh, I don't know, it was a lot harder than I thought and I'm just grateful that I had this beautiful diverse family of people from the hood of North Philly and the hills of Hollywood coming together to tell the story together. It was a really dynamic summer that um, I, I think a lot of us get to share in. Well, and now everybody will get to share in this story. Film is the connective tissue, Ricky. 
and you certainly are going to connect everybody with this story. Oh, job so well done, Ricky. I could talk to you forever about the tunnels and the buildings, and but oh, oh, thank you so so much, and hopefully we will get to talk again. And that was Ricky Staub, co-writer and director of Concrete Cowboy. And, you know, if you're not convinced, let me just say, Idris Elba sitting on a horse, yeah, riding down a Philly street, that is well worth it. That is well worth the price of admission. But, hey, this is going to be on Netflix. You can watch from the comfort of your own home. And I do have to say uh, a huge shout-out to Hugh Dillon with Philly Chit Chat back in the summer of 2019 when they were filming Concrete Cowboy in North Philly. One of the first pictures to circulate on social media um, of Idris on horseback was taken by Hugh. And uh, for some great, great photos of things that happen around Philly, events, people that pop in and out, um, look up Hugh Dillon, Philly Chit Chat on uh, social media and follow them because Hugh really, he gets out there and he gets some amazing shots of the city, the people, and the happenings. So, but... That is all the time we have today. Concrete Cowboy this Friday on Netflix. Next Friday, The Last Rite in theaters and digitally, VOD. Um, Some great, great stuff out there. If you haven't seen it, The Courier is out there. The Tangle, which is amazing. It is mind-bending. And we're going to be talking a little bit about Voyagers in the coming weeks from Neil Berger, uh, who you probably know best for directing Divergent. Um, next week, we got a full house. Stephen Alaric is back with us talking about his new film, Variant. And we're going to have the director of Like a House on Fire. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Behind the Lens.